Okay, today is August the 12th, 2010. We'll prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time that we have to assemble ourselves here to do what's most important in life, and that is to grow in grace and knowledge from your word. We thank you that you've given us the grace system of perception, another grace provision so that we can understand the whole realm of doctrine. We pray that you will help us concentrate this evening, for we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Let's see, uh, I might have to do one quick thing here. There was something that I received as an email that I thought was interesting. And so I'm going to uh, show it to you. This is a very recent news flash here. Um, This was uh, came on the lastcrusade.org, and it talks about 450 grooms that married girls under 10 years old in Gaza. It says that uh, it was a gala event has occurred in Gaza. Hamas sponsored a mass wedding for 450 couples, most of them. Uh, were grooms in their mid to late 20s. Most of the brides were under 10. Muslim dignitaries, including Mahmoud Zahar, a leader of Hamas, were on hand to congratulate the couples who took part in the carefully staged celebration. We are saying to the world and to America that you cannot deny us joy and happiness, Zahar told the grooms, all of whom were dressed in identical black suits and hailed from the nearby Jabalia refugee camp. Each groom received a gift of $500 from Hamas. The prepubescent girls, dressed in white gowns and adorned with garish makeup, received bridal bouquets. We are presenting this, this wedding as a gift to our people who stood firm in the face of the siege and war and local Hamas strongman Ibrahim Shalif said in a speech. And then I have some wedding photos here to show you of uh, what that event looked like. This is, uh, it said the photos uh, tell the whole story. Look these little girls, under 10 years old. Sweet faces there. 
I mean, those look like they're maybe six or seven. I don't know. Look, this little girl has all the makeup on. And then these pictures came along with this email. These were pictures that were made in London. I don't know if you can see what these signs say. One of them says, Slay those who insult Islam. One of them says, Behold those who insult Islam. Butcher those who mock Islam. And Europe... You will pay uh, in something or other. Oh, 9-11 is on its way. These are some of the pictures. Uh, behead those yeah, who insult Islam. Uh, Europe, you're, uh, you will pay. Your 9-11 is on the way. Here's a policeman standing to the neck by them. Then we have, uh, be prepared for the real Holocaust. Muslims have stated that England will be the first country they take over. These are pictures not shown on American TV or in American newspapers, but were forwarded by a Canadian who thought all Christians ought to know. So what we see is, and what we are told, is that Islam is a peaceful religion. Um, I say it's, it's a false religion and it is very twisted and perverted. Let me get back to where I was. Okay, so <clears throat> there are things happening in the world that are grotesque. They are more than insulting. They are uh, repugnant to any person that has any doctrine, any morals. But we just keep on keeping on with what we are to do, and that is to uh, take in as much doctrine as we can. And when I say take it in, I'm talking about concentrating, allowing the Holy Spirit to put that in our long-term memories and be on the front lines and stand firm for the Word. And we can't do that without rightly dividing the Word. And that's one reason we're here. We're in First Thessalonians chapter... Five, if you will turn to that, please, in your Bibles. First Thessalonians, chapter five. Both First and Second Thessalonians have a lot to do with the rapture and the day of the Lord. These are two subjects that people know very little about. As we read 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, automatically we start having a switch, a contrast. Because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul was talking about what we call the rapture. And he goes into detail. In fact, that's the most specific details in the entire Bible with Jesus Christ's return with regards to the rapture. And he uses pronouns like we and us because they were expecting the rapture to happen at any time. And this is going to be a wonderful time, something to look forward to, whereas when we go to chapter 5, everything switches. 
Because now he's going to start talking about the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is not something which is going to bring blessing, at least not right away. The first thing it's going to bring is terrific, horrific judgment. And the first part of the day of the Lord is going to be what we call the tribulation that lasts seven years. It's the last seven years of the Jewish dispensation, or you could say the last seven years of Daniel's 70th week. And we've gone over that repeatedly in the past. Israel was promised another 490 years. The angel Gabriel promised this to Daniel. And 483 years have already passed. In fact, when Jesus Christ rode into Jerusalem in what is known as Palm Sunday, was 483 years of the Jewish time left to the day. And this is... This is um, uh, the prophecy to find that is in Daniel chapter 9. Shortly after that, of course, a few days, you have Jesus Christ being executed on the cross, went into the grave, came out three days later. Then 50 days after that, we have a new dispensation, the church age. So God essentially just put the age of Israel on hold. It's, an, it's, an, uh, it's important for you to understand these distinctions because there are so many false doctrines out there today. A lot of people think that we have replaced Israel. It's called replacement theology. And that Israel is not coming back. And if, not, if, God, if Israel is not coming back, then God is a liar because He has promised them unconditionally certain things that are going to take place when he returns at the second advent and starts his millennial reign. So when we start looking at chapter 5 right off the bat, I want to tell you the whole subject matter is changing from the rapture and what is going to occur to church age believers. And now the day of the Lord, and we have Paul using the pronouns they and them. The reason he's doing that is because Church age believers aren't going to be around when this happens. So, verse 1. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Paul had already trained them about the not only the times, which is chronos, the long period span of time, which takes in more than one dispensation, and the epics, which is the Greek word there, kairos, which means a specific time frame, much smaller like it would be a particular dispensation. Verse 2, For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like birth pangs upon a woman with child, and they shall not escape. Now that's essentially how far we've gotten so far. And I've already given you the information about the day of the Lord that you can see it in a broad sense. In the broad sense, it's going to start a time shortly after the rapture of the church. And it's going to, the first part of it is going to be the, judge, the judgment part. It's going to last seven years. It's going to start with birth pains that is going to incrementally get uh, stronger and stronger. The whole imagery here is that it's going to take seven years of birth pangs until finally 
the good part is delivered, which is Jesus Christ coming out of heaven at the second advent. So there's going to be that period of time where you're going to have uh, judgments that are going to come incrementally, and they're going to get stronger and stronger. In fact, right there at the last, it looks like all is lost. All the armies uh, from the nations of all over the world are going to be gathered there around Jerusalem. Satan is desperate. He's trying to do away with the Jews so that he can uh, prove that God isn't God because if there are no Jews left for God to fulfill his promise, then he can't fulfill the promise, and he's trying to exterminate the Jews. And so this is what we see is the very last birth pang before Christ returns. And then when he, ter- when he returns, it's going to be the ultimate in a bloodbath. All unbelievers will be removed from the earth. It's called the baptism of fire. And the, the bringing in of Christ's kingdom, which is called the millennium, where even the curse on earth is going to be removed, that is going to start with nothing but, but believers. But before that, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, when the rapture occurs, every believer on earth is going to be removed. So the day of the Lord, when, when, the, when that comes about, the believers are already going to be gone. And it's going to, can you imagine when every believer... In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, Even he who restrains the Antichrist, that restraining ministry is going to be gone also. And what that means is all believers are going to be gone. The indwelling and the filling ministries of the Holy Spirit, as well as others, is, is going to be gone. And that's the only thing is the Holy Spirit restraining Antichrist from, from doing what he would like to do now. It, it, it would appear that since Antichrist doesn't know when the day of the Lord is going to begin, that he always has to have somebody that may be a candidate for the Antichrist because he doesn't know when it's going to happen. Because it says here it's going to come like a thief in the night. That's the, it's the, air, the idea of unexpectancy. No one goes to bed uh, expecting a thief to come in the, in the middle of the night. And this is what's going to happen, and we're going to see in verse 4, that it's going to come at a time when they're saying peace and safety. Well, why are they going to be saying peace and safety? Because after the rapture, they're not going to be saying peace and safety then. They're going to be scared. They're going to be panicking the whole world. And that's when the Antichrist is going to step up and he's going to have uh, the powers of Satan on his side and he's going to rally the whole world. He is the the greatest con man there ever will be. And they're going to think that he's got it under control. They're going to trust him to the point to where Israel's going to make a contract with him. The whole world is going to say, well, look, the stock market's going up. Everything is fine. Uh, we don't need Christ. We have the Antichrist. We went to Revelation uh, chapter 6, and we saw the Antichrist riding in on what? A white horse. Same, same imagery as what Christ is going to do in Revelation 19. When, when Christ returns, he's coming on a white horse. He's promising peace and safety. The difference is he's going to deliver, and the Antichrist, which is a fraud, is going to lie, and God is going to see to it that everything that he touches is going to be ruined. 
It could be that Satan is trying to bring in a false millennium, but he can't do it because he is the, father, the liar and a father of lies. This is where we ended last time, is on this last phrase, and they shall not escape. You can see that at the end of verse 3. While they are saying peace and safety, destruction will come upon them, suddenly like birth pains in a woman with a child, and they will not escape. This is an ominous warning for people who are unbelievers better get with it. And this is, well, I, I went to Matthew chapter 24, verse 37 and 39. This is where Noah, uh, we understand that Noah preached for 120 years telling everyone, you better get ready because judgment's coming. And they would laugh and they would scoff. Oh, look at that, look at that nut job over there. He's building a boat. What's a boat? What's rain? He says it's going to rain. We don't know what rain is. He is absolute crazy. And so we probably had a lot of people that would come. They might even uh, erected grandstands to sit and laugh and mock as Noah was building the ark. But they weren't laughing when the rain came and the water started rising. And it caught them completely off guard because they didn't really believe that judgment was coming. And that's what we see in Matthew chapter 24 in verse 37 through 39. It says, For as the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. That means that they were just going on by, uh, going along with, in life, just doing the normal things that people do. They weren't concerned about judgment about to uh, occur. And then verse 30, 39 says, And they did not understand until the flood... Uh, what am I missing a word here? Missing something? Let me move this over a little bit. There you go. Uh, they did not understand <clears throat> until the flood came and took them all away. So shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now what he's saying here is the coming of the Son of Man. And this isn't talking about the rapture. This is talking about the second advent when Jesus comes. And he said it's going to, uh, it's going to be like the uh, days of Noah. Now, who, who, was, who left planet Earth? Who were taken when the flood occurred? It was unbelievers, wasn't it? And who was left on Earth to go ahead and populate? It was believers. That's what's going to happen when the Son of Man comes, second advent. That's what this is talking about. It goes on after this, and it talks about two will be in the field, one will be taken, one will be left. They'll be at the, uh, in, in the uh, grinding corn or whatever. One of them will be taken, the other one will be left. You see, that when Jesus Christ comes, every unbeliever on planet Earth is psh, baptism of fire. They're off. They're off planet Earth. And then it is only the believers, the believers that survive through the seven years of tribulation are going to remain on planet Earth to populate the millennium. This is just the opposite of what happens at the rapture. Do you understand that? At the rapture, you have believers leaving Earth and unbelievers uh, remaining. The reason I say this is because some people like to go here and they're confused and they think, well, this is referring to the rapture. Look at that last phrase. And the flood came and took them, unbelievers, all away, 
so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, in your Bibles, do this so you won't... I mean, you know it now, but you might forget it where it says, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be. Right, right in there, second advent. You see, it, it is, it, there is a parallel here to a degree because when Jesus Christ comes at the rapture, He is coming... And there's going to be certain ones taken and certain ones remaining. But we have to make sure we have this, this, this uh, right as far as which set of circumstances fits here. And here, this is the second advent. It is not the rapture. So in your Bibles, you want to make that little notation. Because the... the Ones that are taken away in Noah's day is unbelievers. The, so shall the coming of the Son of Man be is second advent. Same thing happens there. Unbelievers are going to be removed from the earth. It's called the baptism of fire. I hear a buzzing. Is it bothering y'all? Okay. It might be the speakers. I don't know. Um, let me see if I can get the, full, the uh, full view here. Full screen. i got to get my... One thing about it, when you have glasses and you don't have moans, sometimes you have a hard time finding them. That will test your uh, patience, doesn't it? Let's go down to, let's say, uh, 115. Okay. Now we'll go to full screen, and we ought to be good to go here. Okay. Now, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 4 through 6. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness so let us sleep as let us not sleep as others do but let us be alert and sober now you notice right off the bat in verse 4 there is a contrast here because it starts out with the conjunction uh, in the greek it would be allah i'm pretty sure where's vadel you have that up vadel is it allah de okay de allah and de both can are conjunctions it can be but so it says but you brethren now, a word of contrast is used to indicate that Paul is no longer referring to unbelievers who will experience the day of the Lord. He is now referring to the brethren, believers, sons of light, who will not be surprised by the day because they will be with the Lord. That's the whole idea here. Knowing that the Lord has made provision through the rapture to deliver church-age believers from the horrible day is a great comfort and encouragement to us. That's what the, the Thessalonians were trying to get this all straight in their mind. And he's saying, but, now the, the first three verses had to do with unbelievers that are going to be left after the rapture, that are going to go through the day of the Lord, and it's going to catch them unsuspecting. But now we're talking about believers, and he's saying here that you are not in darkness, that the day should overtake you as a thief. Now, the phrase, are not in darkness, in the Greek is eimi, E-I-M-I. It's a present active indicative. It means it, it, you are continually not going to be 
in uh, caught by this, and that was um, a, a, a strong negative. Jesus Christ sent the Apostle Paul, according to Acts 6, uh, 26.18, to open their eyes, that would be unbelievers, so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God. So we're talking about, there's a lot of contrast here. We have darkness and we have light and we have day and we have night. What are these contrasting things referring to? Well, already I'm starting to show you from this verse in Acts, when it, when, when it, uh, to set up the context, uh, the Apostle Paul was sent to open their eyes. Who is there? It's unbelievers, so that they may turn from darkness, that would be the darkness of unbelievers, spiritual darkness, to light, and from the domain of Satan to God. This is not talking about experiential anything. This is talking about a positional thing. And we're going to see that darkness and light here is referring to positional things that are permanent, not just experiential things. That'll, you'll understand that more as we go. So it says, uh, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the dominion of Satan to God in order that they may receive forgiveness of sins. That means by believing the gospel. He's not talking about receiving forgiveness of sins by rebounding. He's talking about unbelievers receiving forgiveness of sins by believing the gospel and an inheritance among those who have been sanctified by faith in me. So you can see this whole thing isn't talking about uh, believers being forgiven because they're using rebound. Paul was sent to teach who? To teach the gospel to unbelievers. And here we have these same uh, terms here, darkness and light. We have the dominion of Satan uh, to God. John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, therefore, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world, and he who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Now, what that simply means is I'm showing you that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. You know who else is called the light of the world? I'm looking at it. And y'all are looking at it. Believers are called the light of the world also. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now, what? when you look at that, Ephesians 5, 8, it says, for you were formerly... It doesn't say you were formerly... In darkness, it says you were formerly, what? Darkness. That's what unbelievers are. They're darkness. It says, but now you are light in the Lord. That is talking about a contrast of one time, just like we were unbelievers, we were darkness. But now we're light. And now we switch from a positional sense. You all know what I'm talking about, positional. We're talking about permanent. We're not talking about something experientially so far until we get to, in this verse, it says, walk as children of light. What this verse is saying is, one time you were unbelievers, but now you're a believer, act like it. That's what Paul is saying. So you have the experiential part at the very end. Believers are called the light of the world in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Now, this is, this is an interesting verse 
in Amos chapter 5, verse 18 through 20. I would have you turn to Amos, but we don't have enough time for you to find it. Amos chapter 5. Now, this is not talking about Amos and Andy. Probably Amos was named after this Amos. Amos 5.18. Alas, you were, uh, you who are longing for the day of the Lord. Now, let me give you a little context for this. Uh, there was warnings going out. The prophets would go out and they would go into the nation and they would say, Look, you better straighten up. You better get with it because... There's going to be judgment coming. Call it day of the Lord. Now, that is a near type of meaning because Babylonians with Nebuchadnezzar was going to come and destroy them. But it also has a further meaning, which is talking about the day of the Lord that is going to occur in Matthew, I mean, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, the day of the Lord that we're talking about. You see what I'm talking about? In other words, God has promised judgment in the past, and He's describing it here in Amos, what was going to take place. But it has a double meaning because it also is talking about what's going to take place yet future from us. And it's, <laughs> this is wild. Watch, and he's, he's being sarcastic here. He says, also you who are longing for the day of the Lord. Nobody longs for the day of the Lord. Nobody wants judgment to come. But he's saying, you're acting like it. You're, you're, you just can't wait. Have you, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, you, if you had any siblings, brother or sister, and they got, uh, you were angry at them, you weren't getting along with them, and they were misbehaving or whatever, you'd say, you just can't wait for mother to get home. And what you really mean is, you're going to get yours. That's what this is talking about. So then it says, uh, so alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord... For what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and meets a bear. <laughs> a bear meets him. Can you imagine? You're running from a lion. <laughs> ah, there's a bear. Uh, that just slays me right there. Uh, verse 19. And when a man flees from a lion and, and a bear meets him or goes home and leaves his hand against the wall and a snake bites him. You ever had a day like that? Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? And so in our verse, we're, we're looking at words like gloom and darkness and light, these contrasts. And Amos was talking about what was going to happen when Nebuchadnezzar got a hold of him. The Lord allowed that to happen. He was disciplining Israel. But it also has an expanded uh, further prophecy with regards to the day of the Lord when we have already gone to be with the Lord and we're in heaven, God is going to drop the hammer on planet earth. Remember we went over that, uh, I don't know, two or three times ago? That ever since Adam fell, what happened? Adam was the one that had the legal right as a tenant over earth. But when he, when he sinned, he forfeited that right and the the usurper came in, which was Satan, and he has been ruling the earth ever since. And God is going to set it all straight. And we went into the, the scroll with seven seals and the kinsman redeemer and how he had the right to, when he purchased land from a brother, to take that legal deed uh, that he has purchased it and put it in a safe place. 
And then if he didn't take over the tenancy right away, he went away. When he came back, he would get that deed. He would break the seal and show, look, this is my land. You need to get out. Well, what if the person was squatting there didn't want to leave? He had the power. He had the legal power. He also had to have the, the might to toss him out. All this is, is shown throughout the Bible, and we, we've gone through all these things. Y'all remember any of that? Good. Just make my day and go like this. Unbelievers scoff at the idea that Jesus Christ is coming back to earth to take believers back with Him and the idea that He will judge the world for its stiff-necked rejection of Himself. That's what unbelievers do. Here we have it in 2 Peter 3-4. through 4. Know this, first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues as it was from the beginning of creation. Probably 95% of the people that you come in contact with outside of this church, and maybe your family and so forth, are fit that description. You go to the average person and you start talking to them about the rapture, they might not openly roll their eyes, but inside they're doing it. Oh, bro, yeah. Jesus is coming back and you're going to make him where? In the air? And you're just going to disappear? They scoff at that. They also will be scoffing when we were talking about the, the uh, second coming. They're going to be caught off guard there. They just don't believe that God is going to intervene. And when God, the next thing on the agenda, God is going to intervene in such a tremendous way that the whole earth is going to be shaken to its very core. Because there are going to be millions of people that are going to disappear in the blinking of an eye. Planes are going to be crashing. There's going to be auto wrecks everywhere. It's going to be complete turmoil. And by the time they get it all sorted out, and the Antichrist comes and has conned everybody. He's got everything under control. And they say, oh, man, isn't it great? And I know that they're going to look at the stock market. Oh, we, everything is very, very much back in order. That's when God is going to slam them again with the day of the Lord, the judgment portion. And they, when they're saying peace and safety, that's when it's going to whack them right upside the head. And it's going to get worse and worse. When you go into Revelation... All this thing from Revelation chapter 6 to Revelation 19 is given the details of this unbelievably horrible time. Then we have this. That the day of the Lord overtake you like a thief. So let's put it together here. We have... But you, brethren, he's talking to believers, contrast here, are not in darkness that the day of the Lord shall overtake you like a thief. The rapture will end the day of grace, will end the day of grace and begin the day of the Lord. In other words, after the rapture ends, we right now are in the day of light. We're in the day of grace. But when that is over, then the day of darkness is going to occur and that day is going to usher it in, the day of the Lord. It closes one day and opens another. Paul is encouraging the Thessalonian believers not to worry. The day of the Lord would not overtake them like a thief. The simile, you know what a simile is? Like, do you know what like a simile is? 
and all these uses. These teenagers these days, they just throw similes out all, all over the place. Well, like, do you like fudge? Well, like, sometimes maybe, like, just similes all over the place. Of course, they don't know that they're doing it, but they, what do they, what do they used to call Valley girls? Like valley girls? Well, what we have here, look at this. The simile you, a simile is when it, it, it's a figure of speech where you use the word like. It's like something. And so we have the simile used here, like a thief. Do you see it right here? Like a thief. And it's also used in verse 2. Same thing, like a thief. And what, what we're seeing here is the simile, simile used here in verse 4, like a thief, connects this verse with verse 2 where the same simile is used. Only in that verse, they add like uh, like a thief in the night. And we'll see why that's significant in a moment. But I want you to see the two simile used, the two figure speeches, so that when you see this, there's no mistaking that this day is referring to the same day in verse 2. In verse 2, Paul added the phrase, in the night like a thief in the night. Now, why is that? Night is a modifier that contributes to the sense of surprise at the thief's coming. In other words, like a thief is the element of surprise. But when he says, in the night, what is night? Darkness. Night is referring to that period of, the, of uh, judgment during the day of the Lord. So night is a modifier that contributes to the sense of surprise at the thief's coming. Night is darkness, which describes the spiritual darkness of unbelievers who will be caught by surprise. Paul did not apply the implication of the thief analogy to believers. You understand what I'm saying? It's going to catch unbelievers like a thief in the night. But when Jesus Christ returns to get us, He's not coming like a thief. And here's the reason why. Uh, Paul did not apply the implication of the thief analogy to believers. They were, in fact, specifically excluded. The Lord's coming will not be like a thief in the night for members of the church. This is in verse 4, because believers expect... Believers are expecting Him to come. You see, they're not. They're going to be saying peace and safety when judgment hits. But Jesus Christ isn't coming like a thief in the night to get us. Why? Because we're supposed to be expecting Him. We're supposed to be living as if He could come today. So believers expect it, though they do not know the day that He will arrive. But we do know He's coming. And we're looking for Him. So why could Paul tell the believers of Thessalonica that they would not be overcome by the day, that would be the day of the Lord? Well, the reason is because uh, they were not in spiritual darkness like unbelievers. And Paul calls them sons of light, sons of day, meaning they were believers exempt from the day of the Lord. You get it? Because if you are a believer, guaranteed you're not going to go through the day of the Lord because what precedes that? The rapture, that's what we saw in verse, I mean, in chapter 4. The rapture occurs, and then he went into things that are going to happen at the day of the Lord, this judgment. 
Unbelievers do not believe Jesus Christ is coming back to earth either to take believers back with Him to heaven, that would be the rapture, or to judge the world of unbelievers for their stiff-necked rejection of Jesus Christ. They will be surprised at both events. You, you, I don't know if you've ever done this, but if you want to talk to an unbeliever about the rapture, you might as well go to your fence and start talking to a post. They don't know what you're talking about. They're not interested. They think it's a crop. So they don't, they don't believe it, and they won't. They're the ones that's going to be caught off guard, not us. We should be looking and anticipating it. Same thing will happen at the second advent. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4. Know this first of all, that in the last days mocker will come, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust and saying, where's the promise? I gave you that, didn't I? Okay. Verse 5. For you are all sons of light. Paul did not mean that believers would go through the day of the Lord, but they would not be caught off guard when it comes because they were sons of light. The term does not refer to temporary status of being filled with the Holy Spirit or being spiritually alert. Do you understand what I'm saying there? You've got to get this. He says that there. this is a far clause. He's saying you're not be going... Go through it. Look, let me go up here a little bit. That the day that the day should overtake you like a thief. He's talking to believers. He's saying it's not going to overtake you like a thief. Why is it not? When we get down here, for the reason it says, uh, for you are all sons of light. Now, what I'm saying is there are some people that would say what this is talking about is believers will be here when the day of the Lord occurs, but it's not going to catch them by surprise. They're going to be alert. And that's what this means. I'm not saying that it means that. I'm saying this is what some would say. <laughs> okay, let me make, re, reiterate that. I'm not saying it. I'm saying there are people who allege that. They're saying, now, and, and essentially, they're saying it's a... Temporary experiential issue. And I'm, I'm going to prove right now that this is not talking about the day of the Lord isn't going to catch you off guard. It's going to catch you, but it's not going to catch you off guard because you're alert. You're filled with the Holy Spirit. Now watch this very carefully. It is not experiential. In other words, he's not talking about that the, the day of the Lord is not going to come upon you like a thief in the night and surprise you because you're alert, you're filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what someone may allege. Here's the problem. There's actually two problems. This is why it's not talking about people that will actually go through the day of the Lord. I'm talking about believers, but it's not going to catch them off guard. This is why I can't be referring to that. And here's two reasons. Number one. It says they were all sons of light. You notice that? For you were all sons of light. All, in, uh, uh, <clears throat> all church-age believers are in Christ, but they are not all in fellowship with God, nor are they all spiritually alert. You see what I'm saying? Uh, there's never been a time when every believer on earth was in fellowship with God, when they were all spiritual at the same time, are that they were all spiritually alert. You understand? 
It can't be referring to that because it's an impossibility. There's a lot of believers on this earth. And if one believer was out of fellowship, if one believer was not spiritually alert, it can't be referring to this because this says that all are sons of light. The second reason, see, that's a positional sense. Every believer is a son of light because he is in Christ. You can, you can be out of fellowship. You can be spiritually a dumb bunny. doesn't matter. You're still in Christ. So when you're in Christ, what is that? That's positional. It's talking about something that refers only to believers. And here's the second reason. The Greek word for sons here is huios. H-U-I-O-S. It's a noun, genitive, plural, masculine. And it refers to adult sons. At times, we may be experientially, experientially babies, which means brephos in the Greek, and it, or it could be paidon, it could be other words like, you know, little kids, little babies. But positionally, we are all, we have adult sons. And that, that's what? Positionally. Do you understand what this is saying? He's not saying, in other words, what I'm telling you is when it says we are all sons of light, he's not saying, well, we are all spiritually alert. No, he's saying we are all Quios, adult sons, positionally in Christ. He's saying we, the reason that we are not going to allow or we are not going to have the day of the Lord surprise us like a thief in the night is not because we are spiritually alert. It's because we're believers. We're believers. We're adult sons. All of us are in Christ. That's why it's not going to catch us like a thief in the night. You got that? Aren't you glad? Huh? I'm glad. Sons of, sons of light are not identified with darkness of the day of the Lord or the unbelievers who suffer through it because of their spiritual darkness. In other words, the unbelievers are going to go through it because they are dark. They have spiritual darkness. But we are light. We are sons of light. We are sons of day. And I'm showing you that it's not talking about experientially whether you're in fellowship or whether you're alert or not. It's talking about whether you're a believer or not. And the whole issue is if you're a believer, you're not going to be going through it because you're not going to be here. Then it says, and the sons of day. They are sons of day. They are sons of the day of grace. In other words, the church age dispensation. Not the sons of night, which will characterize the last seven years of the age of the Jews. So what I'm saying here is when the day of the Lord hits, how long is it going to last? 1,007 years, right. The first part of the day of the Lord is going to be whammy time. It's going to be judgment, horrific judgment. But when Jesus Christ comes at the second advent, everything changes. Not only are all unbelievers going to be tossed into torments, Satan is going to be tossed into the great abyss. He's not going to be able to deceive any longer. 
And then the last thousand years of the day of the Lord is going to be blessing. That's the chronos when it says the times. That's that long time period. So the day of the Lord lasts a thousand seven years. You go to Second Peter chapter three, and it says that the that the end of the day of the Lord is going to be characterized by what? We're talking about the end of the thousand years. Right. He's going to make a new heavens and a new earth. So the day of the Lord is going to last all the way to there. See, you've got to know about the day of the Lord. Nobody knows about the day of the Lord. Go up to most Christians and you say, I'll give you $50 if you can tell me what the day of the Lord is. Or if you're rich, you, might, you can make it a thousand. They're not going to know. They don't have a clue. If you really feel audacious, make it... Well, don't make it a million, this <laughs> What I'm telling you, these people in Thessalonica knew these things. Sometimes we relegate these ancient people as a bunch of dummies riding on donkeys. They didn't have electricity, so they must have been a bunch of dumb butts. No, we're the dumb butts. We ha- all we have is electricity. If they had electricity, I wonder what they could have done. No, they knew these things. That's why Paul starts out by saying, I don't have to tell you about the day of the Lord. You already know it. There's very few pastors that can say that to their congregations. I don't have to teach you about the day of the Lord because you already know it. I hope I can say that. Then he says, we are not of night nor darkness. God has called us out of darkness, according to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. We are the sons of the day. There would be no reason for him, that would be Christ, to put us through the dark night of the day of the Lord, which is designed to punish unbelievers. That's what it's for. The unbelievers are the ones that are going to receive this punishment. God is going to wrest out the power that Satan has been using against mankind and the world. And it's all about unbelievers. And darkness, what does it say? We are of light. We are sons of light. We are sons of day. We're not not identified with these unbelievers in darkness. Did you have a question? Well, both of them are referring essentially to the same thing because they go hand in hand. Both darkness and night refers to the judgment that is going to come on unbelievers. But unbelievers are never called sons of light. Unbelievers are never called the sun of the day. They're of night. They're spiritual. The, the, the darkness there for unbelievers is spiritual darkness. And because they love darkness, God is going to give it to them in a big way in the form of this judgment. Let me get this. I'm just about out of time. But let me get Zephaniah. And again, I won't have you turn there. <laughs> Maybe I ought to. Uh, Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 14 through 15. Listen to this imagery. This is talking about the day of the Lord again. Near is the great day of the Lord. Near and coming very quickly. Listen to the day of the Lord. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. A day of wrath is that day. A day of trouble and distress. A day of destruction and desolation. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. This is going to be 
the beginning of the day of the Lord is going to be all of these things, and it's going to continue. Now, when God is doing two things when he is pouring out this wrath, and the Bible describes it as saying it's going to be the worst time that there ever has been or ever will be. Now, that's bad. And he's doing it for a couple of reasons. One reason he's doing it is because he is just, he is righteous, and it demands these haughty, rebellious, Christ-rejecting, stiff-necked, immorality, immoral, all these people deserve it. That's one reason. But another reason is it takes this in order to humble Israel so that they will finally recognize and accept their Messiah. When Jesus Christ left, he says, You're not going to see me again until you call for me, until you want me. And it's going to take all the nations of the earth, all gathered around Jerusalem, to crush Jerusalem before they are scared enough and they are humble enough to actually cry out for the Lord. That's why. See, you need to know why these things are happening. And then the pieces start to, to, to fill in. This day of the Lord, this Daniel's 70th week, These seven years of tribulation is for Israel and unbelievers. And we're not Israel, and we're not unbelievers. And we are sons of light, and we are sons of the day. And God will not put us through that because of His grace. Not that we earn it, but you have to understand the importance of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Every one of you are in Christ. And you are sons of light. You see now, this is just talking more, of, a lot more than about somebody being out of fellowship and not, you know, well, they're not really alert. No, it's huge contrast here. Worlds are clashing. They're colliding. This is stupendous. This is colossal, these things that are going to happen. And the good news is, we can read it and know it, And be thankful to God that He is just and righteous and that He is going to recapture the earth. When Jesus Christ in Revelation 6 starts ripping those seals off of that deed and judgment starts pouring down on them, what is happening is every time He breaks a seal, those who are have rejected Him and those who are in Satan's camp and Satan and all of his minions are going to just, they're just going to cringe. Because Jesus Christ is going to come. It's already His. When He redeemed us on the cross, He got the deed. That was the purchase price for planet Earth. Adam fell. He had to be redeemed. When Christ redeemed Adam and us as well, He received the deed of planet Earth. He just hasn't taken possession of it yet. And when He comes back, He's going to break the seals to demonstrate He has the legal right and then he's going to have to force the usurper, Satan, off of planet Earth. Now, why people can get think that the Bible is boring is beyond me. I've seen people take the Bible and just sit it aside, give me a People magazine. People magazine. Well, I have to... You know, we're still in this old world, and we still have the clock ticking. And the clock says it's time to quit, so we'll pick this up next time. The one thing that this does, at least it does this to me, it gives me a greater appreciation 
of Jesus Christ, of His great love and grace extended towards us to keep us from going through this unbelievable holocaust. But furthermore, that He is in control. He has the power. It's going to happen. And if you believe this, how can you not give Him praise and glory for He richly deserves it? And that we are, just think of that, sons. When it says sons, it's talking about male and female, mankind, church-age believers, our royal family. We're sons of light. We're not going through the darkness. Let's close. Father, we're so thankful for Your grace that You have extended towards us and has nothing to do with any credit, any merit on our part, but to realize that You mean business. And this old world has had a curse on it and it will be lifted when Christ breaks through the clouds, the trumpet is sounded, and you'll take care of business. And we can't wait. And before that, we'll hear another trumpet and we will meet you in the air. And we can't wait for that either. It helps put other things in perspective. So we pray that we will have a greater appreciation for who and what you are and what you've done for us and your plan that goes on, which includes us. Help us to get this so ingrained to in our soul that we can't tell, we can't wait to tell people how great our God is and what He's going to do. We pray that you will challenge us by these things, for we pray it in Christ's most high and holy name. Amen.